Hello and a warm welcome to Living Fabulously with Bev. The mission for the show is to get to the heart of well-being through inspirational stories of everyday people, expert insights from a number of health and lifestyle related disciplines, and exploration of topics that underpin well-being. If you want to take control of your well-being and put yourself front and center in your life, then this is the podcast for you. I want you to feel calm, nurtured and inspired so you can enjoy your life and your success. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you know someone else that would get value from the show as well, please share it with them. Join me on this journey and let's live the fab life together. Today, I'm so thrilled to introduce my guest, Heidi Crockett, whose area of expertise includes stress management, brain health, and intimacy. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you for having me, Bev. It's it's going to be fun today. I just got that feeling in my bones. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? So I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I tell people that I speak on stress and sex using a relational neuroscience framework. Let's just quickly cover off what is relational neuroscience. So I always tell people that relational neuroscience is connecting brain to brain. And then integration, which you're going to hear me use that word a lot, is the quality of that connection. So it's an invisible food that occurs between people, the connection that happens between people. And that's, that's how I in general describe it. I mean, it, there's much more to it than that, but I've been learning how to keep it simpler and not use like a bunch of brain science terms to confuse people about it. Oh, good. Thank you. So it's, it's the, the way we interact, but there's, like you say, it's a sort of chemistry or food between us and... But we'll, we'll explore it more as we talk today. Yeah. So how would you describe your own journey? So I fell in love with relational neuroscience after my husband. I was caretaking my husband, and he had a brain tumor, and he passed away in 2009. And then I went back to graduate school to get a degree in counseling. And it was there that I encountered Uh, relational neuroscience. It's also called interpersonal neurobiology. And I fell in love with it. I, as a framework, it really helped me understand the grief and the stress that I was experiencing at that time. And it helped me overcome my grief, you know, and six years later, I wrote a book for caregivers about that. And then two years after that, Just recently, I wrote a book on dating using relational neuroscience. So the first book was really about good mental health in the face of caregiver stress. And the second book was about good emotional health and screening people in dating. Uh, But the common thread throughout it all, which we're going to talk about here, is how the principles in relational neuroscience can help people kind of cope and also thrive. Let's talk about how does the stress response occur in the body? So if people are under stress, I always explain there's two parts of your brain. Uh, There's the middle of your brain, the stress response, which is where emotions are. 
and it's the fight, flight, freeze mode. That's called your limbic brain. And then there's another part of your brain, which is around your forehead. I call it the prefrontal cortex. Some people call it the neocortex, which has been likened to a supercomputer. Uh, I heard one TED Talks where the guy said that if you took like, I can't remember how, 10,000 laptops, it was like it would barely even fill the capacity of like a teeny part of all. So, so that part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex has all these higher functions, like the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex and the nine domains of integration. There's all these technical words, but you've got this supercomputer and then you've got your stress response and they're kind of like two competing functions in your body. And emotional intelligence is really about learning how to recognize when you have that stress response, when you're having a really strong emotion, it's called like emotional arousal or intensity and learning how to calm that down. That's called self-regulation. So that's the stress response in the body is really the limbic brain and the, the central nervous system kind of going crazy like when you slam the brakes on the car to avoid an accident that's like the stress response and then your ability to respond to the stress response requires the use of your supercomputer your neocortex i guess what's happening is because these things can be triggered in the body you know from different things and we're living in a world that's fast paced and crazy but I know that our limbic system sometimes mistakes normal things for, you know, danger. So how can we become aware of our own triggers and what can we do in the moment? So, like I said, I think the greatest trick for everyone is to become aware of the fact that you're really stressed out. You have to notice your level of arousal. The, an example I give is that 45 minutes before a person has a full-blown panic attack, we know that their CO2 levels actually change. So if we can train ourselves be to become aware of our bodies, we can catch these subtle signs and change before our stress response goes super out of, the con super out of control. So being aware of signs, right? And then what we need to do is we need to have resources or tools available to us about what to do when we become aware. So there's two problems. One is whether or not we're aware of the triggers. And the second problem is, do I have resources available to me inside myself, like the ability to self-regulate and self-soothe? And do I have the ability to ask for help? Oftentimes we need resources outside of ourselves to help calm ourselves down. So both are important. Is it individual our response to different triggers or can you just give us a few examples right so i'll just talk about my own life i think it's easier when you give examples especially examples that feel relevant so i'm dealing with a congenital back issue right now and insurance health insurance problems so i think a lot of us can uh, sympathize with that so one example is I've been trying to get an MRI scheduled for almost a month. I've probably made about 50 phone calls total. And one thing that happened to me last Friday was I had the authorization was not able to be obtained with the health insurance company. And so the MRI place called me on Friday and told me that my appointment was canceled for the third time. 
and I actually used a cuss word <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> and I was like, I cannot believe that I just did that. I've never done that before. But so that's an example of, oh my gosh. And like, why did that happen? Well, over time, something that's not really that stressful, it can build. So I think what, and I talk about this in the caregiver stress for people, it's not so much that something happens one time. It's usually like the 86th time that it happens that people just blow up and go out of control. So you have to look at like what's going on in your life. What are repeated things that are happening in your life over and over and over that are stressing you out? And then you have to look at what is your response to those things. Like, for example, for me, uh, I know that I have this trigger where I feel invisible by the healthcare system. I feel like it doesn't care about me. And the reason why it's such a strong trigger is because as a child, unfortunately, I was raised with someone who had their own, who was mentally ill, and they just weren't able to really pay attention to me or care about my emotional needs in particular. And so the odd thing is my experience with the healthcare system today and that stress, it triggers this like unconscious response in me where I just feel like people don't care about me. And so I overreact. My level of arousal, we were talking about emotional arousal, it goes very high um, in the face of stress. And I don't need to get that stressed out, you know, but it is what it is. You know, we all have our own stress response. It's not that there's any one right way to do it. It's that we notice our stress response and we kind of take care of ourselves as a result of it. Like here's some examples, practical examples of what I do as a result of that. So I've actually hired a care manager to help me recently because these things are getting out of control to advocate on my behalf. So I feel supported. So that's like a big piece of stress reduction is feeling like you're not totally alone. And that's like the external world. Um, But I think for the purposes of this interview, I think we're talking more about cultivating those internal resources. Uh, And what that would be is um, cultivating the capacity to self-regulate. So what I did was that moment that I used that cuss word because I was just so upset was I got off the phone and I said, whoa, I, I, you know, I, I calmed myself down. I spent some time outside in nature. I did some meditation. I ate some healthy food, right? So we do things once we realize that we're at a high level of arousal, we do things to calm it down. And I just think that's the best we can do. We kind of take care of ourselves and we get help when we can. Can you recommend a tool that listeners could utilize that would support them going forward? Because you've obviously dealing, you know, with this and this is your area of expertise. For the listeners, if you go to HeidiCrockett.com, I have a free ebook, which is four dating tips uh, for how you can recognize lower levels of brain integration. And that's helpful whether or not you're interested in dating. And the reason why is I explain uh, the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex in that free ebook that you can download. And there's a chart that shows the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. So I would say that a tool for our listeners is to look at that chart that shows those nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. They are things like morality, empathy, intuition, insight, 
fear modulation, which is the ability to unlearn a fear. It's all these higher functions of the brain. And you can become aware of what these higher functions are. And then you can kind of seek to understand, do I have these functions or are they kind of weak? And so the tool I would recommend for listeners is to like understand those nine functions of the prefrontal cortex and maybe to strengthen areas that aren't so strong. And I will say that there's based on research, there's two things you can do to strengthen the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. Number one is meditation. We know that it strengthens all eight out of the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex by like a lot of research. So even just five minutes a day, it helps with the ability to regulate. And then the other thing you can do is cultivate securely attached relationships. That actually improves all nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. So what that does is a counselor, if you feel like you can trust them, like you feel it, intuition in in your body, someone you can trust, whether it's a friend or a family member or a counselor, and you're looking at them eye to eye, and you have what's called attuned communication, which is another one of the nine functions, that's cultivating a securely attached relationship where you feel listened to and heard. And that, believe it or not, it like reprograms your supercomputer and the whole wiring of your brain. It's called co-regulation. So I talked about learning to self-soothe and self-regulate, but also when you're cultivating securely attached relationships with someone else, they're helping you co-regulate. And both those things, self-regulation and co-regulation, help you learn how to manage your emotions. And so you're bringing this back to relationships. And before, we've spoken about three areas, empathic relationships, coherent mind, and integrated brain. So talk us through what they are and why it's important to be in balance in these three areas. Right. So in my first book, Caregiver Stress, the whole basis of it is what Dr. Dan Siegel, who's a neuropsychiatrist out of UCLA, when he created, uh, coined the phrase interpersonal neurobiology, he created what was called uh, the triangle of well-being, and I rename it the wellness triangle, and it represents optimal mental health. And this triangle has three tips to it. And I know this is a lot of information for our listeners. Uh, one tip of this triangle is empathic relationships. One tip is a coherent mind. And one tip is an integrated brain. And the majority of my book, Caregiver Stress, Neurobiology to the Rescue, is explaining what brain integration is, because I think a lot of people don't understand what that is. Uh, But all three of those, for everyone listening, really the hallmark of good mental health is that you have all three of those in your life. And when I say coherent mind, that was the mindfulness I was talking about, mindfulness meditation practice. When I say empathic relationships, that was the securely attached relationships that I was talking about cultivating. And then brain integration is really all these things that we've been talking about. Like, for example, integrating the limbic brain and the prefrontal cortex is known as vertical integration. And there's different domains of integration. But what that is, is 
It's your nervous system being regulated. So all three of those on the triangle, having a good functioning brain, having a clear mind, and having good relationships are important to have good mental health and important to reduce your stress. It's not one thing. You know, this is what often in our modern world, we're looking for one silver bullet. So what we're saying, no, actually sound mental health is the balance of these three things. And you've given us some ideas of how each of them can play out in our lives. Because it's true, you know, when you don't feel heard and understood, it's very difficult, does cause uh, one some stress, as well as this ability to be aware and mindful in the moment of what's really going on, you know, that it's like you mentioned, you were triggered by something that's actually happened in your past. It's not the current situation and it's not the actual event. It's just the recurrence of that event over and over triggering that sort of um, sense of being invisible. What I'm trying to understand too is how can we use choice to let go of stress in our lives? Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with that question, actually, because it it really is about choice. I mean, to the best of our ability, like, for example, that moment that I used a cuss word to the woman on the phone, um, that didn't feel like a choice. It kind of happened. And when we're really, when we slam on the brakes and we're in the limbic brain and the stress response happens, uh, it doesn't feel like a choice. But the truth is that it is a choice. And when we do things like cultivate meditation, really, if you meditate every day, it is amazing with the neuroplasticity and the neurogenesis, it rewires your brain. It will change your experience of reality. You will be able to respond differently to people in the moment. It's called response flexibility. That's one of the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex. And that means that you're able to respond instead of react in moments. So choice, uh, what can we do? There are things we can do. Exercise promotes neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. There are things we can do which actually serve to change our experience of reality in the moment, even though we might feel powerless, eating a clear diet getting a good night's sleep, being well hydrated, it all equips us to really be like you're getting ready to play the game of life. You know, we're all, you're all well hydrated, you're trained, you're ready to go. You know, the point of choice is that you're on top of your game and you know that even if you have moments like that moment where I used a cuss word, uh, that you're not powerless, that all of it is information that you can take in and use and do what's called thinking about thinking, which is where you use your prefrontal cortex to, and you use your mind to reshape your brain. That is at the heart of relational neuroscience and choice. Oh, we could talk about this all day, but <laughs> let me tell me a little bit about your books, The Caregiver Stress, Neurobiology to the Rescue, and The Neuroscience of Dating. Why did you write them and who are they actually for? Uh, the first book. I had a lawyer read my book and she liked it so much that she put it in her, some journal that she was an editor for. Uh, So it actually is for any kind of stress. It's a workbook. Both books at the end of each chapter have blanks you can fill in. So the first book, Caregiver Stress, 
it's really about optimal mental health. So you can take the workbook, whatever your life situation is, and apply the principles in the book. Because I go into that wellness triangle, which we spoke about. I talk about good relationships, having a clear mind, and an integrated brain. And I explain what that is in the book. So that's the first one. So Definitely if caregivers are under stress, it's a great book, but really anyone having stress, you can use the workbook to kind of, it's more basic. The second book, The Neuroscience of Dating, it's a little more comprehensive. It has a lot more charts and graphs in it. I have the nine functions of the prefrontal cortex and the nine domains of integration in it. Uh, and both of them are as available as eBooks. They're not very expensive. So I recommend getting both. If anyone's actually interested in this subject, they're kind of like cliff notes for relational neuroscience. And then if you like it, then you can look at my references and go on and read much more detailed information on this subject. But the neuroscience of dating, it's, you know, and both of them include my personal story in there. I take neuroscience principles and then I use my personal story just so it's not super dry. So uh, the neuroscience of dating is basically explains tips for people who, who you know, want to meet a partner how to not waste your time, how to screen people using the principles of relational neuroscience. But again, everyone could understand the principles and better screen people to save themselves time. It doesn't, you don't have to be dating. So I always explain that to people when I explain both my books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess for anybody who is doing dating, uh, people online may not be who they appear to be. So I think your book would be a safety factor too. Yes, it's true. Mm -hmm. And Heidi, what are your tips for living fabulously? Well, I would say that all of us are capable of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which means that we can create new neural pathways and we can repair neural pathways across the lifespan. So we can use our mind to reshape our brain and create the reality that we want. You are not a victim. You are a winner. And we can use choice to really create the life we want. That's amazing. Thank you. And you can find Heidi Crockett at her website, HeidiCrockett.com. And Heidi, thank you so much for sharing your journey. And what I really feel inspired around is this element of choice in the stress that we experience so that we are responding and not reacting to life as it happens to us. And the other area, I, I love that wellness triangle because I think if you can understand it more deeply and create optimal mental health for yourself through empathic relationships where you have that ability to feel listened to and heard and that will also obviously you need to be that person to others too but that coherent mind so using mindfulness to actually and meditation to strengthen that ability in your own mental health and then you talked about this brain integration of the nervous system being able to be regulated more readily which is really helpful I think in dealing with the world that we live in, but also with dealing with people and also for our own benefit. But I love that you hit upon the things that matter to me in the work that I do too, is around the fact that there are four simple things that we can do to actually improve 
the quality of our, our brain and our longevity is exercise, healthy diet, good sleep, and hydration. So uh, you talk to you use the words neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, but it's essentially uh, ensuring that we're protecting ourselves from the decline of our functions. Uh, over time. So thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Bev. You summed that up quite well. Thank you so much for listening. And I would love to know what you enjoyed most about this episode. You can connect with me on Facebook by searching for Living Fabulously with Bev or feel welcome to leave a message or comment on my website. You can get the links and any references from this episode in the show notes at my website, www.livingfabulously.com forward slash podcasts. Do you have a friend who you think deserves to live fabulously? Spread the love around by sharing the podcast with them right now. Until next time, be sure to live the fab life. The information shared here and in our programs and webinars should not be seen as medical advice and is not meant to take the place of seeing licensed health professionals.